Who hath despised the day of small things? This is a question put by the angel of the Lord as an expression of encouragement to the discouraged governor Zerubbabel. But let me back up a little bit. Who hath despised the day of small things? Zerubbabel was the governor appointed by Cyrus, the Mede, or the Persian, rather. And Zerubbabel brought back the first group of Babylonian exiles to Jerusalem, back home. They came back in about 537. They built an altar to carry out the commands of Moses and worshiping God as they could without a temple. The temple had been destroyed, the Solomon's temple. In about 586 by the Babylonians. And so they come back home, build an altar, and then they laid the foundation for the temple. Cyrus had given them grants, had made it possible for them to order, you might say, the lumber, the timber that would come down from Tyre and Sidon. But after they got the foundation of the temple laid, opposition grew to the extent that they had to stop. The opposition came from surrounding people, Samaritans. They had written back and said, now if you let Jerusalem re be rebuilt, the walls reestablished, these people are going to free themselves from your authority and dominion. And so a letter came back that they had to stop the work. And for 15 long years, there was nothing done beyond the foundation in the rebuilding of the temple. And then God stepped in. He raised up two of his prophets, Haggai or Haggai and Zechariah, for the very purpose of getting the people back to their job of rebuilding the temple, that they could carry out the type of worship that God had ordained, appointed in the Mosaic Law. But it was a time of discouragement. I mean, what could they do? The way it's put in the Living Bible, it says, Do not despise the small beginnings. They just had a foundation. And they had all of this opposition. The people had gotten sidetracked. They'd built their own houses. They were about their own affairs. But God's temple was not rebuilt. And so Zerubbabel felt like, well, here we are, Haggai and I, trying to get the people back into this work, and they're not doing much. Well, that's where we want to read from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Then he answered and spake unto me, this is the angel of the Lord speaking unto Zechariah, saying, this is the word of Jehovah unto Zerubbabel, not unto Zechariah, but Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith Jehovah of hosts. This temple is going to be rebuilt, but not by anything man can produce and upon which man generally relies. His own might, maybe even an army, his own prestige, his own wealth, but it's going to be rebuilt by the Holy Spirit. But by my spirit, saith Jehovah of hosts, Who art thou, O great mountain? 
which is proverbial for some great opposition that they were trying to face. I mean, you know, all of this opposition before the Lord. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. Because the Spirit of God's going to reduce it. No longer a mountain, just a plain. And he shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. That is, Zerubbabel will bring forth that top stone. He's not talking about the chief cornerstone. That's the first stone they lay. And then they, they measure all the other walls and stones by it. But this is the finishing stone, the capstone, the last stone. Zerubbabel is going to finish the tabernacle, the temple, rather. Verse 8. Moreover, the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, The hands of Jehovah... Uh, Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and that's what they did back in 536 his hand shall also finish it and thou shalt know that Jehovah of hosts hath sent me unto you for who hath despised the day of small things for these seven shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel these are the eyes of Jehovah which run to and fro through the whole earth. So God has given Zerubbabel the governor, Jeshua the high priest, and all who were concerned about it the assurance that it's going to be completed. These were words of encouragement, and they got on the job. Finished it in four years, so that in 516 well, it had been all 70 years since it had been destroyed. 15 years since they laid the foundation, the second foundation. But now it's complete. But what did they start with? Just a little foundation. I say little. When I go out and I see people building a house and I see the foundation, it always strikes me that's going to be a little house. I know it's just the foundation just appears small. Then they get the house up, it looks like a normal house. Regular size. All they had to begin this temple was the foundation. But that wasn't going to hinder the rebuilding of it. Do not despise this small beginning. No one, even in our day, as well as in Zerubbabel's day, can afford to disregard small things. Because they add up to big things. Remember Jesus said in Luke 16 and 10 that whosoever is faithful or honest in a very little shall be faithful or honest in much and he that is unrighteous or dishonest in a very little shall be dishonest in much. Jesus says we're going to have the same attitude to all of life. We're going to look upon these small things importantly or insignificantly and that's exactly the same way we're going to look upon what we might consider big things so it's important to realize that however small they may be we need to consider them important certainly the businessman considers every penny important because they add up to dollars the pharmacist and the doctor realizes the importance of small things because just a drop or a gram, too much of medicine could kill. And what about the scholars? 
They recognize the importance of small things like the ABCs of education. Just a couple of issues back, I think it was, I read where in Peach County, uh, a large percentage, I just can't remember the percentage now, of adults in Peach County are illiterate. And they're starting a program where they can teach adults who are interested in learning how to read. Well, they miss out on so much of life if they can't read. Just learning the A, B, C's are important. And living in the atomic age, we ought to appreciate this as well. We've learned how minute the composition of matter is. How by splitting or fission, I don't know which scientific term is used, of an atom, terrific energy or force is produced. Well, God made all of these little things, and all of them are important. Even Jesus likened the kingdom of the church to the grain of a mustard seed. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> he says, for the grain of uh, he says, for what shall we liken <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven? It is likened unto the grain of a mustard seed. He said, the smallest seed there can be. A man takes it, he plants it in the ground, and there comes up a tree large enough for birds to lodge therein. Well, when the church began, the kingdom of heaven, the day of Pentecost, there were about 3,000 souls, Peter tell, or Luke tells us in Acts 2. But Paul could say within that generation, about 62, 63, Colossians 1 and 6, that the gospel was in all of the inhabited world, bearing fruit and increasing. Small beginning. <clears throat> but it grew and it developed. Who can despise the day of small things? And can we suppose that God, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> will overlook the small things in a Christian character, such as small defects? Will he overlook our lying just now and then? Our deception? Our evil thoughts? Evil words? Well, let's take this question and apply it in other areas for our own application. Training just one neighbor, teaching just one neighbor the gospel of Jesus Christ, who would despise this as just too small a task and not sufficiently important for my busy life? You remember in Acts 8, <clears throat> Philip had been sent, or he hasn't gone to Samaria. There was a great persecution in Jerusalem. And there he began to preach the gospel, having great success. We read about men and women being baptized. There was great joy in the city. And then God sends an angel to Philip. And he says, Philip, I want you to leave this great work you're doing here in Samaria, the capital city of Samaria. And I want you to get on that road that goes down toward Gaza. And he does. Doesn't question it. And of course, when he gets along about where the road is, <clears throat> he comes in contact with one man. He leaves hundreds, maybe thousands back in Samaria that he'd been teaching and preaching and leading to Christ. And the Lord sends him to one man. 
But he converts that one man, the Ethiopian eunuch. And that one man takes the gospel with him back to a new land, Ethiopia. Now, we wouldn't despise that work, being guided by the Lord himself to do it. You and I can concentrate on one man, on one woman, and try to teach them the gospel. <clears throat> Last Sunday night, we suggested that we ought to try to baptize at least 10 people in 1995. That's a goal. And we don't want to make it any less. Maybe we could double, triple, or... But let's strive to convert 10 people in 1995. It was last Sunday in January, so we just got about 11 more months to go. But we can do it. We read through something Christ asked me to share with you. It's a little booklet that everybody can use. Even if you can't read, you can give it to somebody who can. Ask them to read it. And we read a number of suggestions from a little paper, and we copied that paper, and we ordered a bunch of these, and they're out on the table, some of them are, and those who were here Sunday night, I want you to read this again, and again, because it's just ways of doing it, and they're words of encouragement. I mean, we can do it. Everybody could do it. Talks about teenagers doing it. Talks about sub-teenagers doing it. So surely... Each one of us can do it. And who would despise a day of small things? Just taking a gospel in this form to one person, one family. We can do it. Who would despise the day of a small invitation? To come to our Bible class. Come and hear the gospel preach. Come to worship God with us. Despise not a small invitation. I read about one man who in a period of three years, one man, was responsible for bringing 647 people into his religious group. 647. Now, this man was not a public proclaimer, but he was a personal worker. And he began by spending one hour a week doing personal work. Of course, he... The time grew, but that's the way he started. Now just imagine, if any congregation had members who were interested in spending one hour a week doing personal work, we would see a revival we'd never seen before. Who hath despised the day of small things? One hour a week? One little invitation? Well, let's move on and make some other applications. <clears throat> Here's another small thing that ought not to be despised. Studying our Bible just a few minutes a day. I received a bulletin from uh, Eric, Oklahoma, I say I, we, recently, and the preacher was trying to encourage the brethren to read the Bible through in 1995. He said that if we just read 12 minutes a day, and at the rate of speed that uh, you read from the pulpit, 
You know, not reading with your eyes where you read faster, but pronouncing it, talking out loud, reading out loud. Twelve minutes a day, you can read through the whole Bible, all 66 books in one year. And we don't have to do it in one year. But why not start? Who would despise such a task as reading the Bible through? In mints, where they coin money, <clears throat> they have the practice, I don't know if this is the way they still do it, but they, they sweep up all the dust that flies from the coins that were used, the metal, making these coins. And they have found that over a year, a large quantity of metal has been recaptured and used to make other coins. Now, if you and I would gather up some of the little fragments of the days and the hours, we might call it the golden dust of our time, that some of us may waste, and just use it, studying, reading God's Word, how we would be blessed. It seems remarkable that so few Christians have read the Bible all the way through. I remember one sister saying, now, you want me to read that Bible through and read all those names and the genealogies? And she said, I'm not going to do that. But she's going to read the rest of it, so I encourage her to do that. We don't have to read all those genealogies if we don't want to, but I find it interesting, <laughs> some of it. Listening to the news uh, religious news on the radio I was getting ready for Sunday. This was in England. And they announced how a young lady in her early 20s had won the national championship of Bible knowledge. I mean, of all those who were interested in competing, she won it. Just in her 20s. She had really focused in learning God's will. And so I think sometimes some don't read because... They don't understand everything they read at the first reading. And who does? And who can? We read it over and over, and then we'll, we'll see something we, we didn't see before. And that will cause us to reflect upon something else. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, 105, that thy word, God's word, is a lamp under our feet. It's a light under our path. And so as we read it through, it's going to enlighten us. It's going to help us understand this better and that better. <clears throat> so we can do it. Young man in the army, he did not like the army. He was homesick. He wrote home about every day. And he was writing one of these letters home. And he stopped and he asked his buddy in the barracks, said, how do you spell rat? And the fellow said, R-A-T. He said, I don't mean that kind of rat. I mean, I am sick and tired of this army, and I want to go home right now. Well, we could start right now and read the Bible through. What about parents taking their children to Bible classes? Parents should not consider Bible classes for their children as unimportant and as a small thing, and surely not preschoolers. I mean, they learn too, don't they? Jesus was an infant. <clears throat> His small hands grew. They developed where he could take a hold and grasp the scepter of his kingdom. His kingdom. He had small feet as he had wandered around in the kitchen holding on to his mother's apron. But those feet grew 
Later on, he was able to walk on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. He had a small voice, but that voice developed, and he could speak out and still the tempest and raise the dead. The infant became a man, and he became the crucified one who became the foundation of the church. But he grew up just like all the rest of us. Your children can become faithful elders, faithful deacons, faithful Bible teachers, and faithful Christian parents. It's important. You remember when some parents brought their children to Jesus and the apostles thought that that's, they're not important enough? They despised little children, I guess you might say in that way. Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. There's one other thing I would suggest to parents. Not only, and, and I think we need to commend all of the parents, bringing your children to Bible classes, but not only do they need to be in the class, but their mind needs to be there too. <laughs> I'm teaching a Bible class every day, five days a week, so I, I know what I'm talking about. Ten and eleven-year-olds, and uh, some of them have a hard time concentrating on the lesson. We're studying the Bible. We're studying the new. We're studying the life of Christ, but some of them aren't listening, and I suppose that happens in all Bible classes. Children, if they had a vote, might vote not to be here. Well, they say, "Well, I'll be here, but mine's out there." So somehow we need to motivate our children at home to want to come and to want to study the Bible, so they'll listen, and the teachers who prepared their lessons can teach them something. <clears throat> Here's another thing that we should not despise, and that is the affections in the home. Marriage is a divine institution, we say. God gave away the first wife. He provided for the family and for the home, and he gave them a law to make that family happy And that's to be maintained, that happiness, by affection, by love, by warmth, by consideration, in small, everyday attention. Someone defined a happy marriage this way. A happy marriage is where a woman gives the best years of her life to the man who made them the best years of her life. Another has defined it as marriage is just a series of trivial incidents. I mean, we go through our routine every day. Maybe they consider, they're considered trivial, but they are so important to the happiness of a happy home. It was Edna St. Vincent Millay who said it, "'Tis not love's going that hurts my days, but that it went in little ways." Reno, Nevada, used to have the reputation for being the divorce capital, I guess, of the world. Because a person or a couple could go there and get a divorce without any problems. But I don't think they have quite the same business they used to because it's so easy in any state. I think in California, you just fill out a farm, send it in. But when it was in its hay, 
heyday, giving out divorces. Divorces were granted six days a week on an average of one every 10 minutes. How many of these marriages, do you suppose, were wrecked upon the reef of some great tragedy? If we could hear the testimony of these unhappy husbands and wives, we would know that love went in little ways. So, who hath despised the day of little things, small things, such as affection in the home? One other is temptation. Who hath despised the day of small temptations? We should never consider any temptation as unimportant, insignificant, because James tells us there is the potential in every temptation of eternal death. So they're all important. They should be to all of us. Some years ago, when we were living in McCrory, Arkansas, Sunday afternoon we went to, I think it's called the Main Street Congregation in Searcy. They had four state penitentiary uh, inmates talking to the young people, telling them about how they wound up where they were, prisoners. In fact, one of them said, <clears throat> between us, that is us four, we are serving sentences totaling 653 years in the state pen. And that's a long time for just four men. We all believe that our downhill slide started with small things many of which looked at the time like innocent fun, then progressed to bigger things, and finally we ended up doing everything in the book. We're talking about small temptations and how they can grow and develop into serious matters. Even under the strongest provocation, a person would not commit a bad crime unless his mind had become willing to do so. That's another quotation. He explains, little by little one drifts into wrong attitudes and sinful habits. A chain is being forged out of small things, imaginations of the heart, examples from those who are admired, little things we don't intend to pursue. And suddenly, these come charging down to enslave with all the cruelty of a savage taskmaster. One other quotation, little by little, one drifts away. The social drink he thought was so harmless becomes the menacing slave of alcoholism. Stealing from family and friends, just a little, grows into robbery and larceny. Bywords become angry, cursing, smoking a little joint leads to experimenting with hard drugs. Too late, one cries, I can't help it. I try, but I'm hooked. And where does it all start? Giving in to small temptations, and they grow. One other application I'd like to make of our principle. Who hath despised <clears throat> the least innovation in worshiping God 
are in the pattern for the church that God has given us. We know from Matthew 15 and 9, Jesus said, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. How much worship is vain because man or men have despised and disregarded the Lord's precepts for acceptable worship. That's why it's important for us to always have authority from Christ to do whatever we do. Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's important. Toward the end of the 18th century, that would be the 1700s, the Restoration Movement began in America. And in the first part of the 18th century, it really took hold. Men such as Alexander Campbell, <clears throat> Barton Stone, people like that. People were being converted to the New Testament church. They were leaving denominationalism. And so the churches grew into the thousands, patterned after the New Testament church. Tens of thousands of people obeyed the gospel. But in 1849, <clears throat> there was a significant group of them who no longer appreciated the silence of the scriptures and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so the missionary society was established without authority. Ten years later, in 1859, an organ was moved into the church building in Midway, Kentucky. And from there on, this new innovation and that new innovation, 1906, we had two different groups in the census. The Christian Church and the Churches of Christ who continued on as they were before these innovations were brought in. Just the smallest innovation can lead down the wrong road, and we can see it in church history, in Restoration Church history. So it's very, very, very important that we make certain we're doing everything as the Lord wants us to do it. Who hath despised the day a small thing? We have an invitation, Jesus' invitation that we extend to everybody outside of Christ, who need to be saved. The Lord requires that we believe that he is the Son of God, all that he claims to be, and that we have such faith in him that we want to surrender to him as our Master and our Lord. Turning our backs on the things that displease him, we call it repentance. Confessing our faith before men and women, our faith in Jesus, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of our sins and then to live according to all that the Lord has taught us to do. If you're subject to the gospel invitation, will you come as together we stand and sing?